Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with the University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from Macomb, Illinois. And we have got part two this week of our conversation with local foods and small farms educator, Zach Grant. Uh, he is located up in Southern Cook County, so the kind of the South Suburban Cook County. And we continue our conversation about dealing with soil contamination. Zach gets into the details of how he, um, the, the many different ways that you can go about cap and fill where we uh, can kind of grow outside or on top of that contaminated soil. And then we dive into the importance of soil testing and the often overuse of compost. There is a lot of great information packed in today's show. So without further ado, enjoy. All right, so we, we've we kind of mentioned this quite a bit, but you know, because so because of soil contamination, a lot of times in urban soils, we're going to be growing things differently, particularly um, edible crops because of that lead concern. Uh, and you've mentioned that that cap and fill. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you're capping that, it, you know, you're putting something down over that that contaminated potentially contaminated soil or or less than ideal soils to grow in. Are you just using like a regular weed fabric, you know, plastic, or are you using some kind of special fabric when you're doing that great question and and it's something that i as much as i've used different types of landscape fabric there's like a whole other realm of these what i call geotextile fabric barriers that you know some of them are used there's this there's this classic one that i see a lot in urban agriculture in some of the sensitive re remediation they call it the orange fabric like you may have if you've seen road construction projects that you sometimes see they lay this material down before they you know build other layers with their roadway and i don't know what differentiates that necessarily with like the you know in the background here you can see that yellow lined landscape traditional kind of woven kind of he more heavy duty kind of five-year uv resistant landscape fabric the difference between that and like the orange geotextile fabric you see like in construction usage i i don't I'm not enough of a material expert to know the exact difference, but I will say that I mean I think if you can any sort of longer term landscape fabric that you know roots when they hit it are likely not going to go through it or it's going to kind of prevent or discourage roots from growing any further down. So in general, like this landscape fabric behind me for these sites that don't have a lot of contamination where it's kind of borderline, we just kind of recommend that. Um, again, there are some specific geotextile fabrics that might be used for these applications, but it's it's sometimes hard to find and source those, whereas these, you know, landscape fabrics are pretty easy to find in different sizes and different applications. So, yeah, typically it, it would be the case where we evaluate the site first, figure out what the maybe let's say lead in particular the contamination level is and if it's not too crazy high but the soil isn't really that great to work with for other reasons quality reasons yeah we would just recommend you know throwing down landscape fabric like that and then you have some options you could depending on the, your budget or your comfort level you could just throw a raised bed on top of that or like a berm bed on top of that and just grow directly in that what we did at our site is we we did landscape fabric at first but then we put a big old pile of wood chips on top of that, like an 18 inch wood chip layer. And then on top of that wood chip layer, we we built the beds out on top of that. And there's, I've seen all sorts of different variations of this and, and there isn't, I don't necessarily know that there's like one proper, like engineered way to do it because it's kind of a, a new area of, of 
study in terms of production. So we've seen all sorts of different ways of, of doing it, but it's usually some sort of combination of, you know, capping the potential contaminated layer and then bringing in different imported organic biomass kind of base material on top of that to grow in. Um, you know, I, I typically recommend, and we can talk about this too, is growers try to find, and a lot of landscape company or, you know, landscape centers have this or some uh, you know, compost suppliers specialize in this, you can get like a 50-50 compost topsoil blend. And usually the reputable ones, right, they test the compost so you can get the, the compost test results. And they're they're hopefully sourcing and testing the topsoil too, right? So they can know they're giving you an uncontaminated pro product. Hopefully. Uh, <laughs> kind of starting from scratch, right? Oh yeah, hopefully. Um, I, I did it so from, in where I'm at, I actually live in Kankakee County, we built a berm bed around our front yard and I use this one landscape company all the time. And they have this like sand mushroom compost topsoil mix. And I, you know, I called the guy up and I said, Hey, you know, what's, where do you source your topsoil from? You know, do it, does, do you get tested? And he, he gave me without giving me the actual test results, which I would prefer. He gave me enough, you know, um, information where I was satisfied. I, I actually tested it myself too and found that it was, it was pretty good quality and not contaminated. Um, and yeah, and we bring that in. And and so, you know, it really depends on your budget too, like and the size of your site, what, how you're going to do that, right? I think for a lot of the audience that the Hort team works with, you think about building these structured raised beds, right? Where you build like a box, some sort of box dimensional raised bed, and then you fill that with something, right? Like we're talking about an imported media. But if you're doing it on an acre, you know, the the cost in wood alone is going to be really expensive. So that's where these kind of berm bed systems come in where you kind of just mound the, the, the imported media and kind of make a raised bed. So it looks like a traditional market, maybe in soil, kind of slightly raised bed, but you're you're building it in, out of imported soil. Um, so we've experimented that with at our site and a few other sites and a lot, lot of different farmers do that. Um, and that, that seems to work well. Um, People often ask, well, how do you keep the material on site? Doesn't it just wash away? And, and that's a great question for a lot of different reasons. Well, one of them is because, yeah, you don't want the material to, to move away, you know, off site. But two, that actually opens up this whole other topic we can talk about, which is the potential overuse of compost in some settings. Because compost, especially manure-based compost, has a lot of nitrogen, has a lot of phosphorus in it. Uh, and not all of it's Im immediately plant available that season. So if if any of that's moving off site, whether leachate or the material itself, that that can create a problem and some you know eutrophication downstream uh, problem. So we want to kind of factor all this together and, uh, and consider that uh, when when we're putting these cap and fill uh, raised bed systems in. And I'll, I'll just go ahead and share just really quickly so we can get a visual on this too. Uh, this is a, a fun little uh, PowerPoint slide I put together to kind of illustrate this uh, and different, many different options that you can look at where that kind of, what we're looking at is three different colored layers. The brown layer on top is kind of the clean media soil compost. That orange line is that fabric barrier, wh whatever you use. And then that kind of checkered white layer is the contaminated soil, or maybe even in some cases, it might be like a blacktop or parking lot that rather than removing that, people are just growing right on top of that. So either way, you can see different combinations for what you could do. You could either just kind of bring a bunch of soil in and on top of a fabric barrier and, and try to grow in that. You could form some beds out of it. You could have 
maybe wood chip paths between that, or you could have like a wood chip barrier that you build the beds on top of. The one thing that this last little picture seen and for listeners, I'll try to describe it is is the is the is the runoff and and percolation. This is actually a kind of an unresearched area. It's starting to become more research, is what what I should say, um, because when we think about infiltration into the soil and kind of that groundwater moving its or the leachate moving its way through the soil down towards the water table in a rural soil that whether it's well drained or not, like that's moving down. There aren't many restrictions other than maybe plow pans and compaction, but eventually that material is moving down. However, in urban areas, if we're growing on a compacted soil or on a parking lot or impervious service, you know, once that leachate hits that impervious service, where's that water go, right? You know, it's going to it's going to move horizontally at some point. So there's an issue with that, with, you know, the storm drain runoff and all these potential nutrients leaching off into that. So there's there's a whole sub issue with the use of compost in urban settings as it relates to like the nutrient loss reduction program, which in talking to our colleagues in that space, the urban I, my understanding is that urban runoff only accounts for, I think, I think it's like seven to 10 percent of the nutrient loading concerns for like the the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. But I've seen some new research out there and it's kind of staggering. It's it's a little bit of modeling, a little bit of field research that suggests that some of the compost application rates that are seen in urban farms and gardens could account for as much as 30% of the oh. phosphorus budget for that runoff of that seven to 10%, right? Again, this isn't, it's, I'm not saying that using compost is bad because it's not, I love compost. We all use compost, but we might just need to be a little more careful about how we're using compost, especially in these urban areas where we're kind of importing a lot of it. And that runoff may not have a place to go if it's hitting a hard surface. Right. Um, so there's a few issues with that, with kind of building these, you know, imported systems that, you know, we're doing it potentially to avoid the lead contamination, but we may be creating this other inadvertent runoff problem and nutrient loading problem if, if we're not careful about it. So, uh, you know, again, it's not to say I'm not trying to uh, say compost is bad because I'm I'm a big fan of compost uh, and rightfully so it, there, it has its place in a major way, but I don't think compost is a silver bullet. Right. We often mm -hmm. talk about in horticulture and farming, there are no silver bullet solutions. I, I don't think that it, we can rely on it for that, especially when we see the rates that some some farms add it. And in the popular media, we see in these no till systems, compost mulch systems where people are adding six, eight inches of compost every single year to these beds. And it's just it's it's likely overkill. And I understand why they're doing it. There actually is a stoichiometric chemical reason why they're inadvertently doing it. But what they don't realize is that they're peeloading their soils, and if that phosphorus makes its way offsite, could be could be some problems. Um, in fact, I've heard people make analogies to the European nutrient loading standards that, where they see some of the rates that urban farms and market farms apply compost at, they would be you know fined like large amounts of euros for the amounts of you know manure or compost they're adding, uh, just you know, just based on nothing, right? A lot of times you now, like, I'm sure some of you guys are familiar with this, where like with lawn lawn fertilization, for instance, like rather than just saying, oh, I'm going to apply my Scott's, you know, 20, 20, 20, 
you now have to, you're supposed to do a soil test first to see where your phosphorus levels are. And if your phosphorus levels are above where they need to be or optimum, you shouldn't be adding phosphorus in your lawn care mm -hmm. program. So there's a lot of research and education around that for lawns, right? Which makes up a huge acreage in, in, in the country. I'm not downplaying the issue potentially with lawns, but certainly we don't want to overuse compost and, you know, all these really well-intentioned uh, horticulturists, you know, we don't want to misuse a great resource like compost and get some of the same outcomes potentially. So. Zach, it, it sounds like you're saying that everything in moderation is is the way to go. And I, and I, I feel myself, I, I will have a special penance later in life for when early in my career when I was just like, oh, you got a horticultural problem, throw compost at it. You got right. this issue, compost, compost, compost. So um, yeah. I wish I could go back in time and and tell myself or the audience at that time, like, hey, no compost you can overdo it yeah yeah, yeah. everything in moderation yeah I, I agree with that everything in moderation and maybe as a transition to another thing we can talk about is using data right using soil mm -hmm. testing and and metrics you can actually visibly look at to help guide the what you're actually applying versus like oh no i've i've applied six inches every year and it works for me and i'm just going to continue <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah and my neighbor does it that it works for them so i'm just going to do it yeah yeah. And, and I can't blame them because, I mean, there is a kind of culture and ethos around using compost that, you know, I think feels right and actually physically is really gratifying to work in. Because if you've ever grown in these kind of imported mixes with high levels of compost in them, they're such a joy to work with in terms of ease of planting, ease of cultivation. Uh, it's you kind of create this almost instantly productive growing oasis instantly with these high compost systems but the, again there right there could be some downsides with that if we don't we don't moderate it so you mentioned soil testing so real quick yeah um how can people where can people go how can they find out about testing soils um if they haven't listened to our, us in the well, past maybe our, they'll our, listen to you our well-developed uh <laughs> soils website that we that we, we have mm -hmm we've been a part of and putting together that's one resource that we can definitely link them towards uh it, it, it's a bit of a challenge ken because you know as we all know in extension as a land grant at illinois extension we don't have a, a kind of public facing soil testing lab that we can reliably send people to so we we kind of have to give them a bunch of commercial options or other land grant options and then we can kind of provide those interpretive services services potentially uh for them so so yeah, I would definitely recommend linking them to the the labs that we link to on mm -hmm. our website. Um, you know, you definitely want to find a lab that that's easy to work with. Uh, that's kind of a low, pretty low hanging fruit thing to mention without recommending a specific lab. You know, I work with a lab that has a really excellent online portal where I can kind of create an account. I can do anything from you know, getting the free soil sampling bags from them to printing shipping labels, anything that makes it convenient, right? And then, you know, you send it off to them and then they they give you the physical result like in a PDF, right? That's great. That's old school. But now they also put it in your account and you have a whole electronic database of of all your uh, your soil data over multiple years, whether that's, you know, lead contamination, you know, your traditional soil test results. So if you can find a, a lab that kind of does that, that's kind of the new 
low-hanging fruit in terms of public interfacing, public uh, or customer engagement, customer service. Uh, the other thing you definitely want to look for is one, and you know, I'm sure you you've heard this before. Maybe some in our audience have heard this that you want to find a lab that, particularly for fertility nutrient testing, that does the the testing that's applicable to soils in your area, right? So. Some of us heard of like, you know, the Malik 3 versus Bray versus ammonium acetate versus there's lots of different types of soil testing for different cations and anions. You want to find the lab that that does that's closest to what you have in kind of your local area and kind of stick with that lab. Right. There's nothing wrong with like going to different labs, but sometimes they have slightly different analyzing, you know, extracting procedures. So it can be an apples to oranges comparison. You know, we we like to say stick with the same lab. You know, a lot of times people ask, well, what about the season, spring versus fall? A lot of times fall soil gets testing gets recommended because that's a a time when you can see what the drawdown might be and maybe changes you can make over the the winter. You know, like it was particularly with liming, like that's a big thing. Like if you need to lime your soils to bring pH back up to where it needs to be, if you apply that lime in the fall, you're probably guarantees some soil reaction to happen by the time planting comes around in the spring. I actually have uh, a database of all my soil samples that I download from the lab that I use. And I just, I just kind of track it all. Sometimes I do it in the fall and spring, um, but I just kind of track it all the different management units just to kind of look for trends uh, in, in general. So, um, you know, soil testing is one of those things. And I, at the specialty growers conference that we're all just that, I was in a session, Dr. Melanie Stock from Utah State. She was giving this great presentation on, on, on cut flower fertility management, which there isn't a lot of good uh, resources for that out there other than I think North Carolina and now her. She had this great analogy that I'm going to use from now on and, and feel free to, to use this widely because I think it's applicable. Soil testing gets a little bit of a bad rap because it's like, oh, it's it's more art than science. It's not very accurate. But what I would say is it's it's as an analogy, it's like, you know, say you have a rec room in your basement and you have a dartboard, right? You go down to your dartboard in the basement and try to throw some darts at the dartboard with the lights off. And you might hit the dartboard every <laughs> once in a while, right? But you're going to scatter it everywhere. You turn that light on, right? You're going to hit that dartboard more mm -hmm. often than not, right? You might not be very good at darts, but you're still going to hit that dartboard more than with the lights off. And soil testing is essentially turning the lights on. That's all it is. So yeah. we're not we're not saying you're going to get an exact recipe for what you need to do with your soil, but it's gonna it's gonna put 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 you in the right direction potentially. And certainly, one thing soil testing is gonna do uh, is it's gonna save you time and money because what you might find out is you have your soil nutrient levels and pH might be exactly where it needs to be, so you don't need to do anything at all, right? And that might be, you know, $35 a year well spent uh, versus trying to track down all these inputs and fer fertility plan you need to put in place. Typically, what, what I'm seeing with my soil results and some of this data we're collecting from urban farmers with Midwestern soils, a lot of times you you really just need to manage nitrogen. Mm -hmm. Like you, you have everything's in place. I mean, there might be some micronutrient deficiencies, maybe some cation imbalances, which we can talk about. But a lot of times, nitrogen is all you need to manage for uh and 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 that can be a good thing because that that's essentially something you can focus on you can target 
Uh, and you can, if you do it right and you set up a good plan, you can see good demonstrable results. I mean, I certainly get it for the home gardening set, how soil testing might be a little complicated and in terms of actionable information, it might be confusing, but if anything, just to confirm that you might not need to do anything at all. Like, I think that's, again, if you're doing it once a year for 35 bucks on average, I would say with shipping, that's, I think that's money well spent. Um, certainly as you, with the commercial farmers we work with, we try to encourage a little bit more rigorous testing, which involves other things like, you know, tissue testing and saturated media tests, some different, more, uh, extensive types of testing but even for like even just a backyard grower i think especially for vegetables doing a soil test once per year is isn't too much to ask and and when you do that soil test mm -hmm. um 90 of the people listening watching your phosphorus levels are going to be high or way more than you need you can tell your lawn care company stop putting phosphorus on <laughs> yes. my lawn <laughs> yes. so say give me a discount now that you're not putting all this phosphorus and probably potassium too so mm -hmm. um this as you said for the most part it's managing nitrogen and and i'll say on the random cases and you probably deal with this more zach with commercial growing than than than, than maybe ken and i with with home growers is a lot of times calcium is also used in a lot of these fertilizers and so mm -hmm. maybe in like a commercial setting you see an excessive amount of calcium in some of the beds, but mm -hmm. um, soil tests, please uh, don't throw your darts in the dark, turn on the lights. <laughs> there you go. You're mm -hmm. uh, already using the analogy to perfection, Chris. I love, I love it. I love um, it. So, yep. I, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you look at, um, yeah, managing for nitrogen. And I think there are some scenarios where, you know, as much as I hate to use the term there, with especially with the micronutrients and maybe even calcium in some cases, we set ourselves up for being able to kind of spoon feed the plants a little bit, which I know that gets a bad rap in terms of we don't we want the soil to feed our plants, which again is happening, I agree with, and is a major part of a sustainable growing system. But soil testing really reveals that in order to optimize there are some scenarios where inputs are needed, right? Um, you know, I think a great example, this analogy of mimicking nature, I, I think is a great one. Uh, it, it's not to say that there isn't a role for mimicking wild ecology with agricultural systems, but but let, let's face it, the culture part of agriculture means there's, it's not natural, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's human influenced. And in order for us to optimize what we're doing with the limited amount of time and resources we have, there likely are going to have to be some inputs involved and, and nitrogen is, is the big one. So, you know, I, I, I don't want to disappoint your, some of your listeners or, or say something that that's controversial, but I, I think that, you know, being a part of extension and trying to be data-based, right? And and we, we have to kind of look at all all options. So I, I'm not against targeting uh, nutrient inputs. Um, in fact, that's a, a big, some of the push for the work moving forward is, is looking at that specifically, is looking at what's going on with uh, urban growers and, and their soil levels right now and what we can do to kind of make better recommendations moving forward. So so yeah yeah it's uh you know i again i i think there's it, it's really interesting there's um there's a great i don't know yeah i, I guess I can, I can plug other extension folks uh there's this wonderful blogger out there 
Uh, his name's Andrew McGuire. He's a, you know, I think he's an extension specialist at Washington mm-hmm. State University. Uh, check him out. He's got a really interesting blog that I, I think is, it's it's great because what he does is he's a great writer, but he takes research information, right, that and translates it, right, the kind of the work of extension in a really pretty easy to understand way. But he really is, is gets down to the brass tacks. He's not He's not looking to go with one dogma or the other, you know, very conventional on one side or, or, you know, super organic natural farming system. He's just like, what does the research tell us? What's practical and applicable for farming systems like currently, right? Because there's a lot of really interesting, what I call basic science research out there about, you know, looking at soil diversity and soil biota and and its role in ecology, right? And, And natural ecosystems, but how that, applies to agricultural systems is not super clear at this at this point right so and there's a lot of overlap right there's in fact conventional agriculture is like in a lot of ways has moved you know more towards the middle if not adopting some of these ecological practices that are very practical versus like what we might have thought 20 30 years ago where it's just like you know, spray 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 urea 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 there there is a lot of adoption of you know good, decent, long rotations, using cover crops, you know, supporting soil biology up to a point where we know it's applicable versus like, you know, only focusing on soil biology, right? Mm-hmm. As that, that, compost, that, that, only that, compost. Only compost, right? <laughs> it's the, the, the three-legged stool we teach in, in soil quality, right? It's not just physical, chemical, or bio, biological. It's all three kind of working together. So... Um, and I, you know, I think soil testing, traditional soil testing gets a bad rap because it kind of looks at primarily the chemical sphere, but that's, I mean, there's a, just a, a wealth of good data that backs that up, right? If, if we have nutrient limitations for crops and we can increase the nitrogen levels they're exposed to, we get higher yields. And mm-hmm. I mean, if we're, if we're trying to grow more food for more people, then that's, you know, we might have to adopt some of that is, 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 is all I'm saying. So um, I didn't want to get too controversial, uh, but I, I get going down this path sometimes and it's, <laughs> I'll, I'll just forward all of those emails to you that we get. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. And I, and I'd be open to the dialogue and having the conversation. Um, you know, that's, I think what, what we try to do here and that's, and that's what science-based, you know, kind of work is, is. we we know what we know currently, and if if it changes with different results, then then that's part of it. Yeah, I I think kind of the amazing thing, and every time I talk with you know experts in a field like you, Zach, um, and an entomologists, pathologists, I realize we are just kind of starting out in this scientific exploration. Like people will, you know, maybe our generation hasn't really had to think much about lead issues. Mm-hmm. But I mean, just a few years before I was born, they figured out, oh, lead's bad. You know, let's take it out of stuff. Um, so this is like this is new stuff. The 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 cap and fill demonstrations that you're showing. This is new science. This is new work that we're still figuring out. We know that it, it applies to um, broadly to a lot of sites. But how does it apply to a specific uh, commercial farm 
uh, you know, home garden. Uh, that's that's kind of where extension comes in, and we figure out how that research and how that how that can apply more into those diverse real world situations. So it is a dialogue that needs to happen. In terms of big take home messages with with urban soils, is you know, like we've already discussed, you know, do a site assessment first, right? Figure out what's going on. Uh, even if you're in a suburban area or you're not totally sure, kind of get out there, kind of dig in your soil profile. Not too deep. You don't want to. You don't want to call Julie, right? Um, or maybe call Julie if if you if you need to dig a soil pit to figure this out, um, and just kind of figure out what's going on and and figure out the history of your site, and then that's going to lead you down the path of you know do I need to do uh, heavy metal testing. Um, and then certainly I, I'm definitely encouraging all farms to do the standard fertility soil testing to start. And, you know, that there's a, another pathway of complexity there that we can that we in extension can certainly help out with. Right. So it's um, you're not you're not in this journey alone. This is what we're here for is to help you with that. So definitely reach out to us who who work with soils and, and we can, you know, do our best to assist you with the time and resources we have. Um, so. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that thing I think that's kind of the big take home message uh with with all of it. Well, that was a perfect way just to sum that up. I loved how you we we just recapped that. So, uh thank you very much. Yeah, mm-hmm. I um so that was a lot of great information about soil contamination and we really dove into soil uh fertility and soil management there too there at the end. So, uh this is a delightful conversation. I think we need to well, part two coming up. Soil. Yeah. yeah, we're talking. All right. Now we've we've established uh, soil contamination levels. We've established what type of soil type you're going to bring in or, or work with. Now it's long term. So that's like part two podcast. We'll, we'll put that in the works. Right. Um, yeah. Well, uh, the Good Growing Podcast is a production of University of Illinois Extension, edited this week by me, Chris Enroth. A special thank you, local food, small farms educator, Zach Grant. Thank you so much for being on the show today. We really do appreciate chatting with you about uh, your your work in soil contamination and and, uh, fertility. My pleasure. Anytime. And another special thank you, Ken Johnson. Thanks for hanging out with me once again, as always, every single week and chatting about our our the dirt beneath our feet. You are the wind beneath my wings, Ken. Uh, Thank you very much. You're going to get hate mail over the dirt now. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. It's it's not dirt. It's soil. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and thank you, Zach. I think we need to have another podcast on how do you wash soil. Anyway, oh, yeah. listening does that as a job. Let's, Let look, let's look into that. <laughs> It'll be like the dirty job show. We'll figure out who that is. Yes. Okay. We'll get them on. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, let's do this again next week, Chris. Oh, we shall do this again next week. We're going to be chatting with Emily Swihart about a brand new project that we are going to want our listeners and viewers to participate with us in. What is that? Well, we will announce it next week. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited to get that on uh, on the track here. So listeners, thank you for doing what you do best, and that is listening. Or if you're watching us on YouTube, watching. And as always, keep on growing. <laughs>